This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, mismanagement, conflict rules broken, and little accountability. We look at the scathing BC housing report and how taxpayer dollars were mishandled. Plus, from housing to policing to the hated cup fee, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins us to discuss his first six months in office. And a British TikToker who moved to the Lower Mainland goes viral, providing hot takes on Vancouver. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, the province released a forensic audit into BC Housing, our provincial housing agency. Now, the verdict, rampant mismanagement, conflict rules clearly broken, and little to no accountability. In the legislature today, Premier David Eby said Shane Ramsey, the then CEO of BC Housing, was actively breaking the conflict of interest agreement when it comes to decisions involving the Atira Housing Society. The society was led by his wife, Janice Abbott. Now, keep in mind, Mr. Ramsey was CEO of BC Housing for 22 years, and according to the Premier, Mr. Ramsey sent text messages and emails telling staff to direct grants to ATIRA, which was a violation of conflict of interest rules. Now, in total, ATIRA has received $120 million in funding since 2018. Now, the report released today says there were 24 occasions where Mr. Ramsey communicated with BC Housing employees about ATIRA. It was a clear violation, according to government. In July of 2022, Mr. Eby fired the entire board at BC Housing, and in September of 2022, the CEO, Shane Ramsey, resigned. So lots to talk about today in regards to this report that's come out. Premier David Eby spoke uh, at the legislature earlier today when he announced the report's fine findings. Take a listen. The report found that the former CEO of BC Housing, quote, repeatedly violated the terms of the conflict of interest declarations and BC Housing standards of conduct, unquote, at page 42. And that, quote, the mismanagement of the conflict of interest had permeated the organization, unquote. While this investigation found no evidence of public funds being dispersed outside of their intended purpose or providing material benefit to any one individual, It's clear the practices at BC Housing under the old leadership were well short of our expectations. The report concludes that there was a conflict of interest breached by Mr. Ramsey, the former CEO, and breaches of conduct by the former chief financial officer. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this forensic uh, audit is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thank you for joining us. Quite, quite the report. It was quite the report. <laughs> Mr. Eby didn't mince words, certainly didn't mince words in the report either. Either, I mean, is this as brazen as it sounds in regards to how they described it? It, it certainly appears to be 50 pages. Almost every page contains, like, something you go, whoa. So um, evidence of deleted texts, of altering the minutes of a meeting, basically, to and, and it's sort of a pattern of just shoving as much money to uh, tears away without any due process, without any tendering, just millions of dollars in contracts directly awarded to this firm, which was run by the, the CEO, which he was married to. Uh, it's, um, it's a blatant conflict, obviously, but it's also a number of steps taken to sort of get around the conflict of interest rules, which were actually spelled out because they knew of this relationship. It's, it's quite an extraordinary report because the, the picture it paints is a culture at BC housing that allowed to 
fester and foster under Shane Ramsey that had uh, employees uh, now the need for some whistleblower protection because there were people there who knew what was going on, didn't like it, but they were obviously felt, uh, I think, for their own livelihoods, should they go public with this? Mm-hmm. In public sector or private sector, there's just basic governance rules that you need to follow when you run large organization. How did BC Housing get to this point where the culture was allowed to fester with this, with you know, this type of stuff happening? It, it should never happen. And so we're not talking about some mom and pop operation. This is BC Housing. How did it, how did we get to this point? Well, I think BC Housing itself is relatively, in terms of its size, sort of a new thing. Um, even though it's been around for a while, it never really, it's become a dominant uh, crown uh, corporation whose budget has exploded in recent years. And I just don't think there was any oversight or accountability in play here. I think also the need to build housing in the most, you know, most sorely needed areas, particularly the downtown east side and other impoverished districts, uh, you couldn't get money out fast enough to build the housing. So I think a lot of people either looked the other way or didn't want to know what was going on because the end goal was to build housing and housing for people. And it was interesting at the news conference today, uh, both Housing Minister Ravi Kale and Premier David Eby uh, went out of their way to emphasize that if you live in housing um, owned or operated by a tier, you're not under threat here. And I think that speaks to the need for this housing. And there's only a few agencies out there that seem to be able to uh, position to deliver the goods. And we've seen, you know, remember there was an agency some years ago that got into hot water for shoveling contracts out the door, too, in the same landscape, the same area where social housing is sorely needed. So in this case, it was uh, the picture painted by Ernst & Young is quite ugly, but uh, it's also in an area of uh, spending that, I think a lot of people were willing to look the other way. Now, clear this up for me and for our audience. Mr. Eby was housing minister, and he asked the board to fire Mr. Ramsey, the BC Housing Board, to yeah, fire Mr. Ramsey? So what we learned today for the first time, if you go back to the firing, which took place in the dead of summer before a long weekend, never really got a full um, explanation from Eby for why this was done. Uh, the impression was left that it was because they were out of step with what the minister was looking for. And we assumed that was to do with housing policy. But it turns out today, David even disclosed for the first time, that they were, the board was fired because they refused to fire Ramsey. Uh, he said he could not say that at the time because of confidentiality requirements. And also, they did not want um, anyone to delete records or basically get rid of the evidence um, if uh, if uh, the board wasn't willing to uh, to dump Mr. Ramsey. So that's the first time we've learned that was the reason for getting rid of the board is they seem to be captured by Mr. Ramsey and they refused to take action against him and E.B., the minister, wanted this done and so the board had to go. And just to confirm, the board BC Housing was appointed by government, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So And that was a previous minister, Selena Robinson? Selena Robinson, and now the new board was appointed by E.B. as housing minister. And that includes largely former veteran civil servants um, who who worked for both under the BC Liberal government and the and the BC NDP government. So I'm going to assume people with um, government background, but legal background and, and accounting backgrounds. Yes, yes, we've got people who've been a deputy minister, 
um, Auditor General's office and such, uh, all with experience and not political appointees. So this previous board that refused to fire the CEO was appointed by Selena Robinson, a former minister, housing minister. She sits in cabinet today. She is a colleague of the premier. She is a colleague of the housing minister, Ravi Kalo. How does that work? That she, the, the, you know, she, the, she, she never appointed Shane Ramsey. Okay. He goes way back. He goes back. That to I know, the, yeah. She did appoint the board. Um, so the... Um, as housing minister. But, you know, I guess you could argue that these things did not come to light under Selena Robinson's stewardship uh, when she was in, when she had responsibility for this file. Uh, Evie comes in, starts taking a look around, um, and doesn't like what he sees, and then sees that there's clear conflict and some questionable practices, to say the least, and wants to get rid of Ramsey. The board won't do that, so he fired the board. Hmm. Now, uh, one of the things I, I think everybody's been asking here is, um, while there has been no uh, a mention of Ms. Abbott's, uh, who is running Atira's salary, the, the Vancouver Sun reports, and I want to clarify this, in 2020-2021, Mr. Ramsey, who was a public servant, was making $357,000 a year. The Vancouver Sun reports that uh, his wife, Janice Abbott, head of Atira, uh, they did not disclose her salary, but Atira's tax filings to the Canadian Revenue Agency show that uh, the top earner at the nonprofit takes home a salary of two hundred to two hundred and forty-nine thousand dollars. So one assumes the person running Atira is the highest uh, salaried person there. So between two hundred and two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Does this any any word yet whether or not Miss Abbott will stay ahead uh, heading Atira? No. Now, here's what's uh, going to happen, though, potentially, is uh, uh, Riley Kalan told me after the news conference today that as soon as he got this report, he froze any funding going to Atira. And so that's been a, a freeze that's in place for the last two months or so. That freeze will remain in place while an investigation continues. I, one has to, one can speculate that a condition BC Housing Board may put on future contracts with Atira is perhaps a change in personnel, uh, which could include her position uh, being terminated or her being replaced. We don't know that. She hasn't offered any comment. We did interview her on camera a couple of years ago about just uh, how they operate. We actually asked her on camera, how much do you make? And she told us that was none of our business. So uh, even though this is, you know, Atiris got to $73 million last year of tax dollars. Uh, and they're getting a considerable amount of money, as you mentioned, um, since 2018. I forget what the figure is, but we're talking a significant amount of tax dollars that go to that, that company to build social housing. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that the, the Vancouver Sun is also reporting that uh, uh, Atira's costs related to, and I want to quote this, related to wages and benefits were much higher than uh, similar housing providers. It, it totaled 20 or 15% mm-hmm. of its operating budget compared to an average of 9% of operating costs for similar housing providers. So there's a lot of questions that still have not uh, been answered. I guess the, the question that's core, Keith, is we've got a huge challenge when it comes to housing. We've even bigger uh, challenge when it comes to affordable housing and those that are dealing with the mental health and addiction issues, those people who need the help the most. This is the last thing you expect from an organization like Atira and many others that this is what's happening with tax dollars. I mean, this is a incredibly offensive, just the report itself. Well, yeah, it, it, it covers a very unsavory situation. But keep in mind, we have seen other companies over the years 
uh, get involved in some questionable expenditure of, contra- of tax dollars through contracts when it comes to social housing. This seems to be the more, one of the more egregious cases, particularly when you factor in the, the conflict of interest situation that the top two people on either side uh, were, were in. Again, it's, it's questionable use of uh, tax dollars. Uh, but it was interesting. We asked uh, David Eby today, if there, is this go, does this go beyond uh, what we see, and could this be fraud? And Ernst & Young could not find enough information to substantiate any that type of allegation. Well, it's going to be very interesting over the next few days. Not uh, over yet. Oh, it is not. We're going to have the Minister of Housing join us at 4 o'clock on this issue. Look forward to chatting with him on, on this as well. Keith, thank you. All right, take care. travel abroad doesn't take long to notice differences between Canadians and others. Maybe it's how other countries' citizens phrase certain words or perhaps there are other cultural quirks. Now, imagine if someone from abroad moved to Vancouver and gave us their thoughts on our culture. Well, Michaela Jesse is doing just that. Miss Jesse is from the United Kingdom. The TikToker from England moved to Vancouver about a year ago. Her views on Vancouver and Canada and all of our oddities has attracted lots of attention on social media. Now here's uh, Michaela announcing her move to Vancouver. I cannot believe that these words are about to come out of my mouth, but I'm moving to Vancouver. <laughs> me? Me? I'm moving to Vancouver. What? What? I'm going to be documenting everything over my TikTok, so make sure to follow and I will bring you along with the journey because it's going to be wild. Oh my god, what am I doing? <laughs> Uh, wild indeed. Michaela Jesse joins us now. Michaela, thank you for speaking to us today. No worries. Thank you for having me. Uh, how has your time in Canada and especially Vancouver been so far? So far, I think there's a lot about Canada that I love. For one, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, I think that Vancouver in particular has that really nice vibe of city and nature. Um, so I've really enjoyed getting to know the, the the country and the, the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm curious uh, for our audience. Explain to them when you post on TikTok. What kind of videos do you post? Yeah, generally I post um, quite a lot of content about uh, food and particularly fruit, which is a little bit um, strange considering when I was younger I really didn't like fruit. <laughs> but as um, I'm kind of exploring these foods, I like to chat about my experiences um, in Canada, like things I've observed, uh, things that are going on in my life. And I also like to get feedback from people on things that maybe I should do in Vancouver, things I should try, particularly foods, like maybe I should try a particularly Canadian food. So, um, yeah, that's basically what my content's mostly about. Now, uh, I was just going through some of your TikTok posts earlier today, uh, and you have, you know, th- there's all these very unique sort of quirks that you see uh, in Canada and here in Vancouver. One of, the, one of the interesting posts from you, you were surprised by the large gaps between the door hinges and the lock that you see in our washrooms. So whenever you shut a, a washroom stall, there is always that small gap of a few centimeters or an inch that's there, which we're all used to. Uh, take a listen for audience to uh, Michaela's uh, post that day. I like a lot of things about Canada, but I do not like the toilet. You know the one thing I hate about going out to like a public space? Are the freaking toilets in Canada. What is going on? I think this is probably like the biggest cultural adjustment is the fact that in the public toilets there are humongous, gigantic, ginormous craters on either side of the door of the toilet. So you can literally 
see in while someone is peeing. Excuse me, sir, but what is that about? Were you taken aback <laughs> when you when, when you first saw that? What was going through your mind? I was. I thought. Well, the first time I saw it, I thought this is just the toilet in this location. <laughs> then I started seeing it everywhere, and I was like, "What is going on? Like, I don't want to be going to the toilet with everyone seeing me, and I don't want to be waiting outside and seeing everybody else." <laughs> it's a very unusual concept to me. It's, you know, I don't even have an, uh, an explanation for you as a Canadian, but you're <laughs> you're absolutely right for pointing it out. But that's how it's been, and I don't think anybody's ever questioned it. But I'm glad you pointed that out. Now, one of the other things you've mentioned uh, is getting into elevators and Canadians how do you find Canadians when you when you get into elevators with them I mean generally I hear a lot of people saying that people in Vancouver are not very friendly which I don't think that has been my experience I think that people should come to London before they they say things <laughs> like that because I found everyone to be super friendly and getting into the um, lifts or the elevators uh, people would talk to you, whereas in the UK, you would get in the lift uh, elevator and you would just stand there in silence. You, you wouldn't speak to anybody else and then you would get out at your floor and that would be, the interaction would be zero. Whereas here, I find that people like to chat to you. And honestly, it's way less awkward to, to chat to someone because you kind of have to stand there. You know that they're there, but you're pretending like they're not there. And it's a very strange concept, so it's, it's much easier to chat to someone. Yeah, you raise a very good point. Uh, I, I, to get into our building here in downtown Vancouver, uh, I find people, uh, you know, uh, are always, at least at the very least, they'll say a good morning or a hello. And because mm-hmm. I worked here at CKNW, I often get people, uh, and we have uh, different types of businesses here in a shopping mall downstairs, of course, but I have people give me suggestions for story ideas or have uh, give me their opinions on a variety of topics oh. as I'm coming in. <laughs> So you raise a very good point. People are rather chatty in elevators here in Canada. That's really important. Now, this next one I find quite interesting because it is a topic that comes up at CKNW among Canadians as well. Our, uh, I guess maybe we're nice. I don't know what it is, but we do tip a lot more than uh, Brits do, don't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think here you, it's sort of like an option to tip anywhere you go. You could be getting a Starbucks drink. You could be getting a Subway. Like you, the option will be to tip. Whereas in the UK, you tip like in a restaurant when someone's giving you table service or like some kind of service that's above and beyond. It's hard to describe, but yeah, I guess like restaurants when someone's um, giving you a table service for an extended period of time, you wouldn't really tip if you someone was just making you a drink. Mm-hmm. And even like at the bar, like you wouldn't tip if someone was just making you a drink and they gave it to you. Um, but here it seems to be a lot widespread that you tip kind of everywhere. And the tip is uh, higher than it would be in the UK. So typically it's about 12.5% in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, whereas here, you know, it's higher than that. So it's, yeah. been, it's taken a bit of an adjustment. <laughs> it is. I mean, you get a, uh, you go to a, a Starbucks or, or any other coffee shop, and uh, when you go to pay with your credit card, it's 15, 18, 20, 25% to grab yeah. a muffin and a coffee. And we do get lots of calls, as I say, uh, on, on this station just on that issue. It is a growing issue when it comes to uh, when do you tip and when don't you. Now, I want to ask you about this one. I think it's important. We're quite proud of our uh, ketchup chips, uh, which are <laughs> unique to Canada. How did you find them? I really actually was surprised by them. When I heard about ketchup chips, and bearing in mind I don't like tomato ketchup, I thought, what is this strange flavor? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tried it. I was open-minded. Everyone says that they're good. And they kind of taste like, in the UK, we have something called prawn cocktail 
uh, crisps, chip, um, and it tastes very similar to me. And I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, that's we're very proud of our our, uh, our ketchup chips. Uh, I'm very curious. Um, do you uh, do you feel at home in Vancouver, I mean, it's hard to leave uh, such a great country like the UK um, and to come to to Vancouver, although it's a very beautiful city, good people. Uh, do you miss home? I do miss home. I mean, the main thing I miss is my family. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be away. I'm quite close to them, and it's obviously sad not seeing them. Mm-hmm. It's not too far away. Um, it's not like being in Australia. <laughs> That's a, a bigger distance. So I can get home, and I try to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... I think that generally the missing home thing is things that you don't really think about. Like when you, on the face value of Canada, it seems like culturally it should be very similar. Mm -hmm. And it's just like small things that you think, oh, that's not quite how it is in the UK. And I sort of feel like it sometimes can add up and you think, oh, I do do miss home. I'm not saying that that means like I'm going to run home tomorrow because I miss it so much. It's just sometimes it's nice to have that comfort particularly if you're having a sad day I remember when I moved here mm-hmm. um it was a big shock and those little things were adding up I couldn't find heat protectant spray I I got like uh, hit in the head by a bird when I was walking down the street I mean that's probably not really thing, but yeah <laughs> so then just flew right into my head and I got home and I like had a cry and I was like what am I doing with my life um but you kind of go over that anything all the amazing things you know it's normal to have a freak out but there's so many amazing things here and I can pop home when I really miss it <laughs> talk to my parents on the, the phone um yeah, so well, been lovely. You can say you have a unique Canadian story. Most Canadians will get hit in the head of the bird, so that's unique in itself. <laughs> I've been here all only my life. Me, oh. Only me, only <laughs> me. <laughs> well, speaking of a missing home, uh, what did this past weekend feel like, especially with the coronation of, 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 uh, of the king? Yeah, it was actually strange because I think it was pretty much done by the time I was, like, woken up. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I didn't watch it. I've seen, like, some clips of it. It's just very strange to now have a king and not the queen I've always grown up having the queen as a, a big part of you know UK culture um so having a king is very strange but hey the new era <laughs> it is a new era um are you planning to stay long in, in it's been about a year now for you has it not yeah so I'm currently on a work permit so we'll just see what happens after the the work permit ends um and make a decision. <laughs> Good. Well, um, if people wanted to find you on TikTok, where can they find you so they can get your takes on our city uh, that are very unique and they're quite fun? Where can they find you on TikTok? Yeah. Um, so my socials are Michaela Jesse. So if you search that, I should pop up with some kind of food or <laughs> item of fruit. Um, and yeah, check me out there. I'd love to have you. I uh, love to chat to people there. So. Well, Michaela, it was absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. Keep doing the good work that you're doing. It's always a lot of fun, and and uh, we need to laugh at ourselves sometimes as Canadians as well. So we really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
today, the province released a forensic audit into BC Housing, which is our provincial housing agency. The verdict, well, conflict rules were clearly broken. There's little to no accountability. Uh, Premier David Eby today said that uh, Shane Ramsey, who was the then CEO of BC Housing and has been the CEO, CEO for BC Housing for 22 years, uh, was actually breaking the conflict of interest agreement when it comes to decisions involving the Atira Housing Society. The Atira Housing Society was led by his wife, uh, Janet Janice Abbott. Um, we learned today that Mr. Ramsey sent text messages uh, telling staff to direct grants to Atira, which was a violation of conflict of interest rules. Uh, since 2018, Atira has received $120 million in funding. The report released also says there were 24 occasions where Mr. Ramsey communicated with BC Housing employees uh, about Atira, which, uh, as the Premier said today, was a complete violation. Joining me now to talk about Atira and BC Housing is Ravi Kalam, BC's Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Why did this go on for so long? I mean, this is a, it's not something that occurred uh, in a few days, over a few days, 24 separate occasions, $120 million that was doled out with very little governance, very little rule, very few rules that were followed. Why did this go on for so long in your mind? Well, there's a couple things, Jazz. Uh, one, uh, the report actually lays out pretty clearly the extent individuals went to keep uh, their activities quiet. Uh, that is one of the reasons why, um, you know, I think the board and others uh, were not aware of uh, quite the level of uh, involvement from some of these actors. Uh, second, I would say that, you know, when Premier became the Minister Responsible for Housing, uh, he heard from stakeholders that there was issues. In fact, uh, he was actually shown some of those text messages at the time. And so that's why he launched the forensic investigation. Uh, and, you know, of course, in the end of the day, we want to make sure that the public gets to see all the information that's there. We've already said that we're going to take all the recommendations and enact them. But in the end of the day, we need to build housing. We have a housing crisis. And people need the desperately needed housing that BC Housing produces. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous board was appointed by the NDP. I think it was by your previous uh, cabinet, uh, the cabinet, or sorry, uh, your, your cabinet colleague in past housing minister, Selena Robinson. Why did that board refuse to fire the CEO? Well, uh, I'm not quite sure, uh, and that's something a question you have to ask the, the, the board or the board members. What I can say is that when they refused to, uh, the premier took action. Uh, and, of course, for the premier, it was two decisions. One was he felt that, uh, that, that leadership change needed to happen, and, and the board at the time felt uh, otherwise. But second, I think the premier rightfully understood that BC housing needs to go through some transformational change, and, and the members of the board at the time uh, didn't have that skill set to do. And so that's why we've got a new board. That's why we've got a new CEO all that work is happening to ensure that we can continue to build housing that de- people desperately need. We're in a housing crisis, mm-hmm. but we also can do it in a way that provides the accountability that uh, everyone thinks and uh, agrees that, that should be there. Uh, how much accountability, how much blame should your government uh, uh, 
be held responsible for in my mind that people have said look you knew of some of these problems yes you investigated but you also increased funding of atira tripled funding in some cases uh, critics your critics have said that the ndp need to wear this they've been in government for six years now this is this is on their watch uh, and they continue to increase funding to atira even though they knew there are huge challenges when it comes to accountability and governance what do you say to that argument well, what I would say is that uh, the 2020, when it showed that uh, the dollars increased, has to coincide with the fact that we were in a pandemic. People were uh, desperately looking for places to live. And a lot of these contracts at the time were given to Atera. The problem, I think, fundamentally, that the report has highlighted, that uh, that the Mr. Ramsey, in particular, the, the, the CEO of BC Housing, uh, gave direction to individuals to give the contracts to his uh, his, his his wife's uh, not for profit, and you know not giving an opportunity for other not for profits to step in and say yes, we can do some of that work. And so clearly, uh, rules were broken. But I think what's fundamental here is that this investigation started in 2021, when the premier came in, he saw something was happening. He said this is not appropriate. Went to the office of controller general. They then said, okay, the only way to get at this is a forensic investigation. And that's why you have the report you have today. First time in 30 years, first time in the history of the province, a report released under Section 25 uh, with, with no redactions. And so we want to make sure that the public gets a chance to see this, because in the end, we need that accountability. We believe in that accountability. No one should above the rules. But we also need to get to building this critically important housing. Will you be pushing to have Janice Abbott removed as head of Atira Housing. I know, uh, you know, she's head of this nonprofit. Uh, do you can, do you have the, the power at least to compel, to pressure the board there to say she needs to go? Well, we, we don't. They're an independent uh, organization, and so they'll have to make decisions. But I would say this, guys, that if I were on the board and I saw the information that is presented in this report, I would take, be taking swift action to change the leadership uh, at, uh, at Atera. Uh, I was very uh, troubled to to read the Vancouver Sun and find out that uh, that uh, Miss Abbott hasn't even read the report yet. Uh, and so, if you haven't, and after three years of uh, three uh, weeks of of having it through your legal teams, taken the opportunity to even read the report, it means you're not serious enough to make the changes required in that organization. So, certainly hoping that the board takes this uh, very seriously. Uh, is there any opportunity? For legal action here, when you say that, uh, you know, the fact that there were text messages that were erased, uh, people working around uh, the rules, is or is there any opportunity for legal action in regards to uh, what's transpired here? Well, the, the CEO uh, is gone. Uh, the CFO, uh, who was also named, is gone. Uh, the report uh, highlighted that uh, from what they had seen, that there wasn't enough for uh, criminal action. And so, uh, you know, so I think the space for, for that is limited. I mean, again, our, our focus from this report and making sure of public is because, A, we want to make sure that there's full transparency in what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. But we know after we got the recommendations, all the pieces, the foundational pieces that we need to put in place, BC Housing will be uh, in a better place to build the, the critically important housing people need.
According to the audit, $90 million in public funds was advanced to a, to a, to a tier between the end of 2020 and 2022 with little to no financial accounting, to my understanding, according to the report. Uh, and, and you provided some of the details uh, in this conversation. My final question to you is, yes, you can blame Atira. You can blame their former CEO. You can blame, blame the present uh, leader of Atira. Does the NDP government bear any blame for any of this? Well, just again, I'll, I'll go back to the point I made earlier, was that we uh, this uh, arrangement was there since 2010. The uh, forensic investigation that we've asked uh, uh, EY to do only went to 2016. We don't know what happened before 2016. So it's, uh, it's I think, a little premature to say that it's one government. I can say to you that we took it seriously. We uh, called in a forensic investigation when things were seen. The premier... Uh, move the board uh, in order to get the things that needed to be done done. And uh, we made the report very public. And, you know, we are seeing significant historic level of investments being made in housing because we're in a housing crisis. And so we're going to continue to make investments to build the housing that people need in our communities. But we're going to do it in a way that's transparent to people, just as we released the report today. Minister, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Hey, the verdict, as I said, rampant mismanagement, conflict rules clearly broken, and little to no accountability. Joining me now is Kevin Falcon, BC United leader. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Jeff. Your thoughts, you saw the report. Uh, you've been uh, uh, in previous governments, you've been a minister, you've been at the cabinet table. Your take on what you're reading today? Well, it is jaw-dropping, and I really think your listeners have to understand, uh, you know, your, the, pre, the minister was just on there trying to... Uh, downplay their responsibility here but i'm just going to take you through a little walk Mm -hmm. through this entire process because this is truly shocking so first of all you'll recall that the bdo which is an accounting firm had a report that came out in late 2018 Mm -hmm. Um, the ndp government like hid that report they didn't release it they basically stopped any further work being done on tried to bury it we got a leaked copy that we released last year now, you'll remember, in fact, Evie was on your show, Jazz, when you asked him that question, had he seen that report? And his answer to you was he had not seen that report. But then the next day, he acknowledged, well, he was, quote, familiar with the report, end mm-hmm. of quote. Uh, and then BC Housing issued a, a false statement saying, well, those are old issues that have been since dealt with. Not true. And then you recall in May last year, there was another devastating Ernst & Young report, another accounting firm, that talked about what you just mentioned at the outset, lack of financial controls, failed program delivery, conflicts of interest, etc. EB quietly released that report on the Friday evening of the Canada Day long weekend. Does that sound like very much transparency to you? No. Then, the following Friday night, he fired the entire board. Now, the NDP are trying to make it seem like, oh, well, that's because he was dealing with this issue. No, because he was quoted in the Vancouver Sun, and I quote, the changes to the board are not related to any sort of wrongdoing, end of quote. So we tried to deny it had anything about wrongdoing. We now know that clearly was not the case. And this report, I think, uh, also shows that the funding to ATIRA, it tripled under the NDP, even after getting that report in 2018. And most of that tripling increase happened while David Eby was the minister responsible. So their their fingerprints are all over this disaster. I think that it's such a massive uh, waste of taxpayer dollars and the, the, the just the gross incompetence. 
really infuriate me as someone that has a you know a private sector background and knows the basic elements of you know uh, you know oversight and holding people accountable, et cetera. So sorry to go on, but that is infuriating to me. So in this case, let, let, let's just talk about the president for a moment. Uh, should Janice Abbott be gone from Atira? Uh, even though, you know, well, she's not in government, but this is a private sector uh, nonprofit that relies on government funding. Should she be gone? Well, you know, I, I noted with interest what uh, Ravi's response was. He said, well, the board, uh, you know, that, that independent board is independent. Well, first of all, they get almost virtually every penny of their funding from the government. Okay, mm-hmm. so just, you know, understand that. Secondly, they've also written back to the premier and Ravi and made it clear that they're not going to be making any changes to the executive. Uh, that they do not feel that the, you know, BC Housing or, or the, that report has made clear the need to do so. And so much of the report, again, this very common with the NDP, was redacted, that it's very difficult <laughs> without seeing the unredacted portions for them to make a decision. So I think that the, you know, David Eby and the NDP are trying to blame all of this on Atira. Atira gets virtually all its funding from the provincial government. They are responsible. David Eby was the Minister of Housing responsible for BC Housing mm-hmm. during the period in which much of this uh, chaos has, has taken place. That's where the accountability lies. What do you say to the argument that, look, there was such a pres- such pressure on BC Liberals, this is uh, 2010 onward and uh, 27 onward, Liberals and New Democrats, to build public housing. And sometimes to build public housing, perhaps a few corners were cut under the BC Liberals and the BC NDP, and then a culture has been created uh, under Mr. Ramsey where it just got to the point people lost control that we knew need to build things and I'm not doubting the BC Liberals built public housing just as the NDP say they're building now do you think this has also been a culture that's been slowly building uh, with both governments uh, that we've got to this point well you know certainly if uh, if there was a culture of BC housing uh, certainly I never knew about it back when I was in government back in 2012 2013 because mm-hmm. I can tell you I was a former finance minister and uh, you know, if I even had a whisper that this kind of nonsense was going on there, we would have been all over it, just like I was when I dealt with the ICBC challenge and fired the president and started making changes there when we discovered uh, uh, the fact that they were, you know, spending inappropriately, had too many executive, et cetera. Uh, you know, so, look, the the problem is the most massive run-up in the funding to Atira, which is now the largest housing provider for the B.C. government, happened actually under the NDP watch. And it was happening in spite of the fact that they were very clearly aware through a whole series of reports that there were all kinds of alarm bells ringing all over the place. And I've always argued, as you know, Jazz, that, I, you know, I, I, I think the NDP have good intentions. The problem is none of them have the background and the experience necessary to know how to manage large, complex organizations. They don't come from that kind of a background. And the, the kind of alarm bells that were ringing at BC Housing um, you know, David Eby, as the minister responsible, should have been all over this, and he wasn't. And instead, he tried to bury, mislead uh, the public and not be transparent about the information, releasing it on long weekends, etc. And it's just unacceptable, and that's so, not how you run a government. So what and should happen next? If we want, uh, if we look, if uh, Janice Abbott uh, steps down from a teeter, so be it. But ultimately from government, which is incomparable to taxpayers, does Mr. Eby need, uh, like, who needs to fall on the sword here? Is this a question of Ravi Kaila? Has the housing minister got to fall on his sword in regards to what's happened in the past? Well, somebody should be held accountable for this. I mean, mm-hmm. this is an outrageous misuse of taxpayer dollars. It's an outrageous cover-up of, of how bad the situation was. You've got the minister responsible, David Eby, at the time, releasing things, you know, on the Friday of long weekends, trying to bury reports, trying to deny he'd even seen reports, as he did on your show, then the next day admitting he'd seen the report. Um, you know, this is just, 
you know, even when he fired the, the, the board, as I said earlier, he said the next day in the Vancouver Sun that it was not related to any sort of wrongdoing. Well, he knew at that moment that that simply wasn't true. Why couldn't he have said, look, we found a whole bunch of wrongdoing going on here. Uh, that's why I've removed the board. We're going to get things straightened out and fix it up. He did not do that. Every opportunity he's had to be honest and upfront about this, he's avoided doing so. Mm-hmm. And I think that that suggests a real problem for us because it suggests a pattern of behavior that we're probably going to see all throughout government. Kevin, thanks so much. Look forward to chatting with you on this topic because I don't think this story is going anywhere. Thanks so much. It's not going anywhere. Thank <laughs> you, Jack. The federal government is expelling uh, Chinese diplomat Zhao Wei, who uh, Canada's spy agency CSIS says uh, was involved in a plot to intimidate uh, a Conservative member of Parliament, Michael Chong, and his uh, relatives in Hong Kong. The announcement was made today by Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Uh, they've basically declared uh, Zhao Wei, who is based in Toronto for the Chinese um, consulate, uh, as persona non grata. I guess that is uh, a diplomatic speak, that uh, we want you out of the country. And that's exactly what's happening. They are expelling uh, Mr. Zhao Wei uh, uh, immediately. So uh, it is an interesting turn of events, uh, certainly. We've also learned today from the Toronto Star that Ottawa is in advanced stages of drafting a list of entities that pose a risk to national security uh, and top universities. We are told, based on that report, uh, are prepared to avoid working with entities uh, that would be a loss to, to our understanding of more than $100 million in annual research funding. So that could be uh, state-controlled universities, research, research institutions, and laboratories that do research with our universities. Uh, that means access to, you know, advanced technologies. Uh, just think about that for a second. Think of what Huawei, which is a, a, a company based in um, China, and the 5G work they're doing. Now think about some of the advanced work and research work they're doing with many of our universities. That includes the University of British Columbia, Simon Fraser University, McGill, University of Toronto. Joining me now to talk a little bit about today's uh, announcement that uh, Zhao Wei will be expelled is Kenny Chu. Mr. Chu is a former Conservative MP for the city, uh, for the uh, city of Richmond, uh, and as you know uh, of past stories where uh, we have heard of foreign interference, specifically in his former riding, and of course in the past uh, election as well. Uh, Kenny, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. First and foremost, your uh, reaction to the fact that the federal government is finally expelling uh, a Chinese diplomat uh, after we had learned about an attempt to intimidate uh, Conservative MP Michael Chong and his relatives in Hong Kong. Well, according to the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, Article 9, a country, uh, a sovereign country like Canada, uh, do not have to provide any reason for declaring somebody PNG persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And um, frankly, this action um, is two years too late. Uh, from my perspective, um, it, 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 pegs, it begs the question, why the delay? And also the uh, House of Commons has just recently, like today, passed a motion um, of, of four action items. And uh, this is only one of the four action items. The other ones, like, for example, closing all the uh, Chinese illegal police service stations in Canada, etc. The government has not been responding. In fact, uh, everybody in uh, on the Liberal caucus side have voted against it. That's um, that's something uh, quite interesting. It, it, in all, in, all, in other words, 
the Liberals' member of parliament have voted against something that uh, maybe they don't know. The foreign minister uh, is doing at the same day they voted against. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think needs to happen next here? Is it a question of beyond shutting police stations down? Um, I just mentioned that uh, there seems to be um, you know, work towards banning laboratories, Chinese laboratories and universities to do joint research with our universities. Um, do you think that's the direction we need to go in or do you think there's more that needs to be done beyond that? Well, the, the House of Commons passed motion mentioned that uh, we should have a public independent uh, inquiry, mm-hmm. uh, a proper one, and also the, the, the establishment, not the studying or the hearing or the roundtabling of a foreign influence uh, interference registry. Um, these are actions that the government can surely done to date. The government has not talked to Senator Leo Hosako, who has uh, a bill uh, modeling after the Australian uh, he has not spoken to him or the original uh, proposer, who is myself, about why and um, why we think. Why do we think that this is effective? Uh, it looks like that they are they're trying to buy more time with their uh, roundtable and their consultation. By the way, Jess, the uh, Minister Mandicino's roundtable and consultation is supposed to finish and end tomorrow. I'm just very curious in what would be the the resulting from that roundtable consultation that is uh, secretive and also by invitation only. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you think culturally we take so long? Uh, You mentioned Australia. Um, There's a country even deeper, uh, in a much more deeper way, entwined with China when it regards to selling of their natural resources. Um, They view themselves as an Asian nation. Uh, but they still stood up to China. Uh, you know, you talked about the foreign registry that um, that you original idea that you brought up. In many cases, it'd be very easy if you don't want to follow yeah. that one. You could have cut and pasted the one that's before the UK Parliament. It doesn't take a lot of work. It's a question of do you want it or don't you? It's a question of will. Why do you think at its core the will isn't there? Like we seem to be just stumbling and fumbling our way. Even what I just said here that, that we're looking at a broader a plan to really watch and ban certain laboratories and research institutions from China, not to do joint work with our uh, our universities uh, on technology. So essentially, we don't want them to steal our IP, our international, inter, um, our, our protocol, our, uh, our our IP. That should be a no-brainer, right? Inter- well, inter- intellectual protocol. Yeah. Why does it take so long in regards to will to do anything in this country for a one-party totalitarian state? We should be pushing back easily and quickly, and we don't do it. I don't get it. Well, that's a million-dollar question, Jazz, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the list is actually quite long. Don't you forget about the uh, the Huawei um, core 5G technology mm-hmm. um, allowance? It, it cannot drag its feet until our 5G ally pretty much gets frustrated with us and booted out, you know, out of uh, other other security alliances. Um, one can only speculate. Uh, there have been there have been many. Uh, more knowledgeable commentators. And I personally, I believe it is something to do with two factors. The first one is ideological. The senior, uh, Justin Trudeau's father, the senior Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he he visited China uh, when they first started the communist regime. 
And then uh, in the height of uh, the Cultural Revolution, destroying a lot of uh, Chinese uh, cultural uh, entities, and, and also one can argue that it's a soul of the Chinese culture, uh, he also visited there. He was the first one to, rec- uh, to recognize the communist Chinese. I think it runs in the family that there is truly an admiration of the communist regime. Um, that, that is what I suspect because of the, the family history and the trajectory. Mm. The, other, the other speculation a lot of people have is because of the entangled economic interests that many retired politicians are uh, enriching themselves with, uh, with China trade, even though China trade only accustomed to, um, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more than 16% of our GDP. Um, somebody is making a lot of money, and therefore there's a lot of people keep talking about China trade, China trade, China trade, Team Canada, etc. Yeah. So I, I think these are two uh, reasonable speculations. I think you're right. I mean, I mean, we've been doing this since the 90s, though. Uh, you know, business leaders, political leaders saying China, 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 we're going to change China, just trade with them, we'll change China, and China's changed us. They haven't changed. And so I think, whatever it may be, I hope this is a wake-up call for us, and, and booting out a diplomat may be a start. So I think I'm, I'm happy with that, but there's a lot more to do, that's for sure. Kenny, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Well, it's been over six months since Ken Sim was sworn in as the 30, 41st mayor of Vancouver. In that time, he and his ABC Council colleagues have pursued many of their campaign promises, more police on the streets, a safer Chinatown, perhaps drinking a glass of wine at uh, one of Vancouver's beaches, faster approval of housing at City Hall, eliminating the paper cup fee, and a promise to Vancouver get its swagger back. Well, joining me now to discuss this for six months in elected office is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, thank you for having me. Uh, you have never held elected office before. Uh, you've just passed the six-month mark. Uh, and, you know, you've gone straight to the mayor's office. Uh, how would you describe the first six months? What have they been like? Well, they've been eventful. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, from um, from a time perspective, I think we're well over a year. Our day starts at about 7 o'clock in the morning and it ends at 10, and it's basically seven days a week. And let me tell you, it's been, um, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, any disappointment so far in regards to uh, just what you were expecting from the job or a specific piece of legislation where you said, you know, uh, this is not what I expected? Um. Actually, no disappointment. Uh, actually, I've been very pleasantly surprised. Uh, I, you know, full disclosure here, I thought a lot of the job would have, you know, um, let's just call it what it is. I thought it, it would suck um, to get to, you know, I thought 80% of the job would be um, um, crappy to get to the 20% of the meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been the opposite. I, I would say about 90% of the job is absolutely phenomenal. And it's it's an honor and a privilege to be able to, sit here with uh, with our teammates and um, help reshape the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you surprised at the process? And what I mean by that is always the, the you know, you, you want to get things done quickly, and sometimes in the private sector, you can move a lot faster. Here, there's always consultation needed, uh, more consultation needed. There are guardrails put in. Um, you know, there's process on top of process, bureaucracy, whatever you wish to call it. Uh, that hasn't frustrated you, especially somebody from the private sector. 
Yeah, look, some of the stuff really frustrates me. For example, when it came to getting rid of the cup fee, um, it took it took months upon months when in the private sector uh, you'd have that decision made in about 12 seconds. And I know through my meandering journeys uh, of life, uh, you can try to rush stuff through, but if you don't have buy-in, um, you won't get the support. And so it's okay to be thoughtful and take a little while longer on... Um, significant issues to make sure that people understand it and you get buy-in. Um, and if that's what it takes, then you know, so be it. Uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about some of your specific policies. I think the, the major policy during the, the last civic election campaign was the promise to hire 100 police officers and 100, 100 mental health nurses. Uh, when do you think you'll be able to fulfill the complete promise of the, the hiring of those 200 individuals? Yeah, it's an ongoing process, and I think we're making great progress. Uh, more to come on that. Uh, but like, look, last week I was at uh, um, a swearing-in swearing ceremony at VPD for 23 new recruits. And Vancouver VPD is a destination police um, uh, agency where people um, want to come and work uh, with our team. And so you know, uh, we'll start to see uh, people on the streets shortly. And then when it comes to the mental health workers, um, I know Coastal is working incredibly, incredibly hard, and we're making progress there as well. So, is this another couple of years, or do you think it will be done with within this four-year uh, term as mayor? Yeah, I, I think we'll be able to fulfill that in our first term for sure. That's that's the goal, and um, hopefully, way before the end of our term. Um, you know, if if we get the hiring in place, it it'd be great to have it done by this year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in regards to the broader issue of crime and public safety, uh, Chinatown in some ways has been the epicenter, but many other uh, c- uh, places around the city, downtown and other communities, uh, you know, street disorder and public safety are priority number one. In the past six months, do you think Vancouver is a safer city or uh, do you think there's more work to do here? Well, I definitely think there's more work to do here. Uh, do I feel that it's, a, or do I think it's a safer city? I think when you look at the stats, depending on which ones you look at, yeah, the, the place has gotten safer. Um, but that's almost irrelevant. I think the bigger question is, do people feel safer? Um, because if people don't feel safe, then they're not going to go out on the streets and um, frequent our neighborhoods and our restaurants and, and our businesses and, and feel safe just walking out. And so... Um, I, I, that's something that we have to work with the residents of Vancouver and provide them, you know, um, an environment where people feel safe. And I think through our actions, we're starting to build that level of trust, be it um, the work that uh, we've done over the last eight months in the downtown east side, um, be it um, signaling to the community that we're hiring 100 new police officers and 100 or, um, you know, um, more mental health uh, workers as well. Um, be it uh, revitalizing Chinatown with graffiti removal, with cleaning the streets, with um, our initiative to invest into Gastown. These are all things that we can do as a city to help people feel safer. And what we would like uh, the community to do is help us with this because, you know, the city can do um, a lot, but if if the residents of the city don't come out and frequent um, the neighborhoods, then it will be all for naught. And 
how we make the place safer is uh, we create the environment, but pe people also come down, so there are people on the street. So, and by default, that actually makes the street safer as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you talked about the the downtown east side a little bit there. Uh, there was a, a tent decampment in the downtown east side. Uh, a lot of stories in and around that. Uh, you know, uh, the city says that there was a lot of garbage down there. There's an issue of public safety. Some nonprofits and residents said that the forced removal of those tents have caused more harm than good. Your former chief of staff, Kareem Alam, also uh, was saying that um, there was a promise made uh, prior to the election that uh, you you and ABC would not decamp residents without adequate housing, an adequate housing plan. There's not. What do you say to that, that perhaps you moved too quickly and your, your, you and ABC generally moved too quickly, that it could have been done a lot differently, and particularly finding the housing for these people uh, before coming in and removing them? Yeah, so we have been working on this for over eight months, and it actually started with the prior administration. And for eight months, uh, we were in a, it was a, a city of Vancouver engineering-led initiative to help, um, well, enforce a fire uh, bylaw and get um, people out of their structures and into uh, shelters and other forms of housing. And so uh, I think, I, I'm probably going to get the numbers a little wrong here, but I believe 90 people um, were housed and another 100 and some odd were put in, um, were given shelter spaces as well. Uh, for two months uh, prior to the April 5th uh, removal of the structures, uh, we had uh, made a pretty big push to help um, to offer housing um, solutions to people on the streets. And um, for the most part, we were turned down at that point. And the, the significant thing that changed, which really um, changed the whole dynamic, was the incredible uh, threat to public safety in, um, with those structures on the street. We literally pulled over 2,000 propane tanks out of those structures, uh, including 100-pounders. And I think your listeners uh, need to realize that if one of those 100-pound tanks went off, um, it would have taken out a whole city block. And the conversation we'd be having here would be, um, well, how, why didn't we do something and why are hundreds of people harmed or um, you know, why did hundreds of people die and entire uh, buildings blow up because of this? And so... Um, we were put in a situation where we were not looking to solve homelessness on April uh, the 5th. We were looking to enforce a fire bylaw and get rid of an extreme threat to public safety. And that's what we did. You felt you made the right... And by the way, mm -hmm. every, but every, and by the way, every single person um, who put up their hands uh, for shelter space uh, on April 5th and April 6th got it. So you felt you made the right decision. Uh, yes, um, and I do want to stress, you know, uh, there was a lot of compassion and empathy uh, in the whole process, and, you know, we wish we lived in a perfect world where um, everything's perfect, um, but we don't, and we had to make a tough choice, and uh, that's the tough choice we made. We're speaking to Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver. Uh, just over six months ago, uh, Mr. Sim, along with his ABC uh, Council were sworn in. Uh, he is our 41st mayor of Vancouver. Part of the break, we were talking a little bit about public safety and 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 housing. Uh, I wanted to uh, focus a little bit more on the issue of affordability in housing just for a moment. Part of the challenge, uh, uh, Mr. Sim, uh, when it comes to housing, is just the ability to get it built and the ability 
for those plans to get through City Hall. Do you believe uh, today if someone were to come in for a housing project, whether it be a single-family home, townhouse complex, or condos, uh, that they'd be able to process or get that plan processed through City Hall any faster than prior to the, uh, the, the last election? Well, I, I think there are some things in work where on a case-by-case basis you probably could, but make no mistake about it, we still have a lot of work to do. It's not going to happen overnight, but we're putting the pieces in place. Um, so in, in the future, we'll be able to streamline our proce- processes and um, people will be able to get uh, permits a lot faster. What is your plan? I just want to clarify. You, you have a certain set timelines for different types of housing, do you not, when it comes to approvals? Yes, we do. And so it, it would be uh, three days for simple renovations, uh, three weeks for single-family homes or townhomes, uh, three months for low- and mid-rise uh, um, a condo buildings, and one year for substantive projects. And so what we're doing is we're, we're, we're reviewing bylaws, all these different things that really uh, slow down the process, and we're trying to streamline those things. Um, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but we're, we're you know, cautiously optimistic uh, as towards uh, as to the progress we've made. And I also want to do point out there are other things that can help us leapfrog um, these goals. For example, there's a, there's an AI company based in Australia where um, through the work they've done, they're approving permits on single-family homes in 12 seconds. And so that is something that we didn't build into our um, projection models um, you know, um, when we ran um, for office, but uh, make no mistake about it, we are big believers in embracing uh, the latest, greatest uh, technology. And if uh, if we do that, you know, there could be an option or alternative where we more than exceed our uh, three-week goal. Uh, when can we see these changes implemented? Um, you know, they sound good on paper, uh, and so I know it's only been six months, but when can we see some of these changes uh, number one, implemented, or when do you think the average person who wants to come and build or rent their home can actually see those changes at City Hall? I think some of the changes um, we've already seen, like there, there are some, um, you know, there, there are some um, motions that we've had in council uh, to streamline some of these processes. Uh, you have the Broadway plan coming out as, or that's come out as well. Um, so, you know, we are working on the structure. Um, so if you're one of the lucky uh, individuals that uh, fits uh, one of our boxes that's been streamlined, you're probably going to see it a lot faster. If you're not, um, you know, uh, I, I wish we could um, go faster, um, but stay tuned. We are working on it, and, you know, um, w- the process should get better and better as time goes on. Mm-hmm. I just want to touch a little bit on the Broadway corridor plan just for a moment as well. Lots of debate on whether or not there should have been cycling lanes. Do you regret that at all? Because many have said you're inevitably probably going to go back uh, and put in cycling lanes eventually. You should have been doing it now. What do you say to that argument? Well, what I say to that argument is we have a limited amount of resources and uh, the situation is pretty dynamic. And full disclosure, I'm an avid cyclist. I cycle a lot. What I would say to the people that want the bike lane right on Broadway, we actually have four different bike lanes um, within a few blocks of Broadway. And um, we have other parts of the city that are uh, completely underserved when it comes to multimodal transportation. And so we have to be smart with our resources. Um, I don't think 
you know, I, I think uh, cyclists out there uh, would support using those resources and helping uh, build more infrastructure in underserved areas. Um, and so those are the decisions we made. Uh, you've also talked a little bit about uh, Vancouver nightlife. You've talked about uh, the city getting its swagger back. Do you have a time to officially announce when we get our swagger back? I've always, I know it's a broad statement that you made. Uh, define yeah. that for me a little bit. And that's to sort of what, what swagger means to you and when we can expect it. Well, it... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it could mean so many different things, um, but I'll, I'll give you an example. And by the way, it, we're not going to all of a sudden wake up one day and it's like, wow, you got the most swagger around. It, it's going to happen uh, over time. Um, so I'll give you an example, Gastown. Looking at Gastown and making it uh, an even cooler place, uh, working on the, first the public safety, um, fixing the road, but also then um, experimenting with car light or car free um, zones. So we can uh, turn that um, or transform that neighborhood, that iconic neighborhood into arguably the best neighborhood on the entire planet where you have restaurant patios and live bands and art installations and you know thousands of people there all the time. Like that would be really cool. Uh, we can do the same thing, you know, uh, revitalizing Chinatown, um, working on Yale Town, uh, you know, even uh, spilling over to uh, Carisdale and making it a, a cool place for the neighborhood. Um, and then you talk about being open for business and attracting different industries here and letting industry know that we're open for business. So, um, you know, we create a, incredible opportunities for people of all walks of life. You want to work in a variety of industries. That's how we get our swagger. And it's going to be an ongoing process, but we've already started it. Ken, thank you for your time today. Lots to talk about in the past six months, a lot more in uh, in the uh, months and years uh, ahead. Look forward to chatting with you soon again. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you very much. Jerry Martin said he plans to challenge his arrest in court, uh, arguing that contaminated drug supplies cause harm. Uh, Mr. Martin uh, began selling drugs last week out of a mobile, or recently uh, selling drugs out of a mobile trailer parked in Vancouver's downtown east side, a neighborhood, of course, that we all know with a high rate of drug use and concentrated drug overdose uh, prevention services uh, as well. Uh, he was on the news last week uh, as the owner of the drugs store, and Mr. Martin joins us now. Jerry, thank you for speaking to us today. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, first and foremost, uh, where are we in regards to your arrest? Uh, you plan to fight it in court, I'm assuming? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we want to do a constitutional challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to the the mobile trailer that you had set up, referring to it as the, the, the drugs store, what point did you wish to make? Uh, well, we want to make a full point. Sorry, is that, is that coming through there? Yes, you are. You're, you're, you're clear. Okay, yeah, we just want to make it clear that uh, people need a safe supply of these drugs so that, you know, less overdoses, uh, less harm. I mean, ever since the the, the government here has uh, decriminalized, which is awesome, uh, I believe that, you know, overdoses have tripled now because they didn't provide a safe supply with that legalization or decriminalization. So, uh, but do you think it, this, that should be handed, uh, that responsibility should be handed to, to everyday citizens like yourself? Because at the end of the day, while they have decriminalized it, you still need guardrails. You still need some sort of process and law to, to, to make sure uh, that there is some control. I mean, if we just left it up to anybody at any time, it, 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 it would be a free-for-all. 
Well, I agree, but the problem is, is they didn't do that, and they intentionally didn't do it, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they, you know, they're pretty smart people, and they knew that if they did not p- provide a safe supply and let an entire province be allowed to have these drugs, it was just going to get them from the same tainted supply, and it was going to be nothing but trouble. So they've left it up to people like me to step in and do that until they've decided they can do it. How can you guarantee safe supply? Well, I use uh, Get Your Drugs Tested uh, downtown in Vancouver. It's uh, already approved by Vancouver Coastal Health. Um, and it, and how much, I mean, your idea was to just park yourself on a street there and people would hear about you and, and the drugs store, as you called it, and they would just come to you? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I did. It was a nonstop lineup until I closed. In two and a half hours, it was extremely busy. Um, if others started doing what you did, do you think that's what a G7 nation, a responsible nation, a responsible province uh, should be doing, that everyday citizens just sort of set up um, to be very, I don't mean to be flippant here, but like a lemonade stand for drugs, though, and just say, I'm selling it up, it, it's I'm saying it's safe, and I want to sell it to you. I mean, did, can a society work that way if we start do, heading in that direction? I don't see why not. We do it with liquor stores and everything else. And, uh, you know, it's not just an everyday citizen that does this. It's, you know, it takes someone that's uh, willing to, to give up their life to save other lives. And I've done this before. I've had a cannabis dispensary I ran for four years. So it's not like it's the, the first time I've done this. And uh, we did really good with that dispensary. Mm-hmm. We helped a lot of people. Uh, and would you do this again? I know you, there was an arrest. Uh, there's going to be a court appearance. Would you do this again? Yeah, it was a very expensive day. I lost my truck. I lost the building. There fifteen grand in cash, drugs. Um, yes, they'd do it again. That's the whole point of doing it was to get arrested. It would have been nicer if they didn't take so much. Uh, but it is what it is, and that was the whole point so that we can do a constitutional challenge and try and legalize drugs. Uh, and, and I just want to clarify here. You think that all hard drugs, the use of hard drugs, should be like cannabis? I just want to clarify your position here. No, I'm not saying it should be like cannabis. There's probably stricter rules that should be involved. But it should definitely be, you know, done by the government, maybe even a pharmacy. The problem is they just haven't done that. So it's going to take someone like me to step up, mm-hmm. face the government, get arrested, and make sure those laws are put in place by a court after we win a constitutional challenge, saying that it is absolutely necessary that we have a clean, safe supply. So in your mind, is two and a half grams the right amount, or do you think it should be higher than that? Oh, absolutely, should be higher than that. Uh, maybe not in a you know in a store, maybe online. Uh, it really depends. Uh, I think it should be done more of a, on a prescription basis in the beginning, uh, so they can test out what they do for uh, medical patients, and then maybe go from there. Uh, if they're going straight into recreational, I'm sure they'll start off with a two and a half grams, which is you know I think that's quite fine for hard drugs. You don't need much more than that, I would think, in a day. Uh, do you think the majority of the public would be supportive of what you, you've done or and want to do, or do you think you're in the minority here? Actually, I think I'm in the majority. I think whether really or not they that? like hard drugs or not. I think they'd be pretty happy if one of their family members went out and got something that they actually were supposed to get instead of something fentanyl, a fentanyl lace that killed them. Um, whether they like drugs or not, the fact is that somebody's family member is going to do them, and I think they'd want that family member safer than not. Mr. Martin, uh, I don't think anybody disagrees with you in regards to wanting to save lives, but do you fundamentally believe that the majority of the public taxpayers, people listening to this show, would be supportive of hard drugs being sold uh, at, at a corner of the street with, the, you know, you're calling yourself the drugstore? I mean, I, I think you have a lot more 
uh, more convincing to do, one would assume, with the public uh, who, to be honest, they understand the issue of why we're doing it. They may not like it, but there's a, still a huge amount of people out there that say, look, law and order matter. We do not want drugs sold on our street. It's not a perfect society, admit that. But people don't want drugs sold on their street. They don't want hard drugs to be legalized. I can see maybe they're thinking that, but I think at the same time, if they just heard a different opinion, they may change their mind. Mm-hmm. If our drugs were legalized, we wouldn't have near the addiction problems. People would be treated as human beings. They'd be treated with a health problem, not a criminal problem. It destroys families. If they look at it from that angle, I think they'd change their mind real quick. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Martin, I really appreciate your time today. I look forward to chatting with you in the future. I know this is an issue that isn't going to be going, back, going away anytime soon. Really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.